Good evening. Since uh, John is not going to be with us on Sunday nights, uh, Dave Hoskins, Jim Hartle, and I are going to try to uh, fill in these gaps when we're available. When I'm in town, I'll be here, and so far with the other two. So if you will, stay with me and, and sing uh, number 279, There Shall Be Showers of Blessings. tell you what, Tony, when those words aren't up on the board, my 50-year-old eyes go. I'm going to have you hold the book next time for me. Uh, any birthdays tonight or this week? You'll confess. Ginger, okay, you're going to confess what age, too? 71? You said it was 39 in package and handling, right? 71. Let's sing happy birthday to Ginger. Happy birthday. Any anniversaries? It's not my birthday, but I am receiving gifts. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> Kay went, oh, man, not again. Uh, uh, any other announcement this week? Uh, anybody have anything on their mind they want to let us know? Uh, any word of testimony? We maybe haven't had that for a while, but anybody have a word of testimony that's going on in their life right now? Tony, I believe nothing's good going on in the church this week. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. I, I tell you what, I'm, yes, Wolda. Amen.
And I, uh, I, I don't get here on Sunday nights hardly at ever because the group's always torn somewhere. But it's, it's a blessing to be in God's house anytime. And I, I do appreciate you all. And I don't get a chance to say that very often. Linda, I'm so grateful for you on the piano when you can. And, and June Lynn, this morning's number was beautiful. Thank you. Anything in the balcony? No? All right. Um, I don't have my bulletin up here, but most of you heard the uh, announcements this morning. Anybody want to add anything to those announcements or times? I believe the sign-up sheet for the dinner is in the back here, right, Tony? And this is the last night for that, correct? Yes. It's in the bulletin. No, I, I trust you, Wayne. All right, this time we'll have the evening offering. We should all be that excited about giving. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the uh, the opportunity to give, whether it's our, our our monies, our talents, our times. And what better place to give than your house and to your people and to your ministries. Lord, we ask your blessing on everything that's in the offering plate this evening and this afternoon, that it may bless and continue to bless and continue to grow this church so we may do your will here in Moundsville and abroad and continue to uplift each other in this house and around the world. This is we ask your name. Amen. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you, Bob, very much. Be willing to help. Have you ever seen a couple, uh, you know, in a relationship, and it doesn't it doesn't make very much sense? And what I mean by that is, and I know this is strange, but have you ever seen a couple where? Where one, where we're like, I'm gonna, I'll speak as the, as the guy, where the guy is not, just, is not good looking enough to be with that woman. Now let's, I know that's so judgmental, but it's true. Sometimes you notice and you think, why in the world would that woman be with that man? I like, I call that, that a guy outkicked his coverage when I see that. That just, you, you have no business being with her. When Jesus, how's that for a transition? When Jesus 
finally came and paid the ransom for our redemption to make himself our husband and we his bride, we outkicked our coverage. Big time. Our marriage is not a match. This marriage is not a match to the point of lunacy, but it's more secure than any bond that has ever existed. You know, how, how can this be? That, that, that we, the church, are married to Jesus Christ. In our text tonight, we get a chance not only to see God's strategy for restoring His relationship with His people, but we're given insight into the very logic of grace itself that's actually in the Bible. And it's established here at the outset of the book of Hosea. It's a proclamation that stands over what follows. It's God saying in His sovereignty, no matter what, this is what's actually going to happen. And so the second part of chapter 2, where we are uh, tonight, describes how God will win back His bride. And then the first part of chapter 3 sees Hosea the prophet enact the message as he buys back his wife Gomer from the slave market, the prostitution market. Salvation is the result of God's commitment to me, even though I do not reciprocate. At least not enough to merit this love that keeps me from abandoning Him. God secures and accomplishes eternal and irrevocable salvation through His unilateral, gracious, redeeming love. Let me pray for us before we head into the text. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for what it says, what it reveals to us about Jesus Christ. I pray that we as Your people would understand its purpose, why You wrote it, why You wrote it the way You did, why You put it together the way that You did. And I pray, Father, that tonight You would soften our hearts in a a significant way, Lord, so that we might grasp the absolutely stunning truth that comes to us on these pages. Please help me to preach like it's that. And please help everyone to understand. And I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 14 down to verse 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Now, the Holy Spirit of God has employed a rhetorical device 
thus far in Hosea that is hard at work to press the main point of this book home for us. We've seen the word therefore twice. Again, we're we're separated by weeks, but we've seen it twice now so far in verse 6 of chapter 2 and verse 9 of chapter 2. And its purpose both times has been to reveal God's judgment on Israel for her adultery. Okay? In 2.6, Israel has played the whore by going after other lovers, remember, other nations, to be the means of her provision. Therefore, in verse 6, God will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her. In 2.9, Israel did not recognize God as the source of all that they had and instead used the silver and gold He had lavished on them to secure the worship of Baal. Therefore, God will take back all that He had once provided. So, We've got this pattern in our heads that when we see, therefore, it anticipates a description of judgment. But out of nowhere, in verse 14, the pattern is broken. So to get the full effect of that, let me read 13 and 14 together. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore... Behold, I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. You know, do do we realize what we just read? Because she forgot me, I will allure her. That's the logic of grace. That's why it's there. Because that's what this is. This is grace and grace alone here. This is divine grace. This is holy, unconditional grace. It's backwards even. right? Because not only has Israel not met the conditions of the covenant, it's not like she simply fell short. She's broken the covenant. She's done the opposite of keeping the covenant. Not just has she fallen short of it. This language from God then means that whatever change is going to take place in Israel is the result of God's grace and not the prerequisite for it. Because she forgot me, I will allure her. Because she forgot me, I will bring her into the wilderness. He's saying, I'll remove her from the place where she's surrounded by her other lovers. Because she forgot me, I will speak tenderly to her there. Why will God be gracious to her again because she forgot him which means he must really love her the woman god will allure let's not kid ourselves is a woman that has shown she cannot say no to other lovers and this is the means by which god will win back her love what's his response here i will romance her until she finally loves only me Our hope tonight, our hope always, is the logic of God's grace, that that's how it works. That when He sees you wandering, He goes after you. It's not human logic. Human logic completes this sentence differently. Right? You forgot me, therefore I will no longer love you. Right? You forgot me, therefore I will cut you off. You forgot me, therefore I will go find someone else. You forgot me, so I'm going to forget you. And if God is the one forgotten, that logic of judgment makes all the more sense. 
We would not have been surprised in the least. We expected, Hosea has, has crafted it by the Holy Spirit on purpose here. We would not have been shocked. In fact, we expect it to read, She forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will forget her. I will destroy her. But avenging Israel's adultery is not God's ultimate aim in the punishment He is about to bring on her and send her into exile. Getting her to pay for it is not His ultimate aim. His ultimate aim is to win her love back. This is God we're talking about. Why is it written in these terms? The the, the love is not necessary. And to do that, to win her love back, God will give grace to her. That's how God guarantees love. With grace. Not coercion. Not force. Not ultimatums. Grace. It's an amazing thing. The, the, the logic of grace, that that's why it's there, because you rebelled, is so redemptive, it boggles the mind, it thrills the soul. That's why there's music. right? That's why there's music. That's why we sing, because this is the way it is. That gives you a song. That's, that's, it's because you have forsaken me that I will redeem you. It's because you hate me that I will love you. God alone is the basis of these verses. Israel's not going to accomplish this. That literary device that therefore with the switch reflects reality. God's grace is stunning. It's surprising. Because she forgot Him, He will allure her. He will draw her back to the place where in His mind they first fell in love. To the wilderness outside of Egypt when He first brought her out of slavery, there in that same way that He freed them, He made the covenant with them, provided for them, He's going to draw near to her again and speak tenderly to her again. He will show her how He feels about her. The exodus from Egypt was the great defining act of redemption in their history, but now through the prophets, through these twelve, it's seen as the pattern for a greater and a future act of salvation an ultimate one, a final one, where God will make a new covenant with them. He will bless her with vineyards, that is, with provisions. She will have enough to celebrate and dine and all these things. He will even make the valley of Achor a door of hope, he says. Hosea is filled with the reversal of what once stood for what is bad, the undoing of tragedies that have been attached in their history to certain names. Achor was the name given to the place where a man named Achan and his family were executed. Do you remember him maybe? When Israel first entered the land of Canaan, God promised to fight for them. Remember, He promised to give them the land. Since that was the case, they were commanded not to take any spoils of victory from the peoples they conquered because God was the actual victor. All the spoils belonged to Him. But when they defeated Jericho, there was an Israelite man who just could not resist. He took a cloak and some silver and gold and he hid them in his tent. Next thing you know, God judged his people by allowing the relatively weak city of Ai or Ai to defeat them. And as a result, Achan's sin was exposed. He was executed. His whole household was executed. To be precise, they were burned with fire and stone and then buried in rocks. So, just so we're clear, every time we have the chance to see it. Please don't ever think that our God winks at sin. A cloak and some silver and gold. He said not to do it. That's what happens. 
So when you come across texts like this, like this, this is his actual heart. This is this is what he's after. This is who he is. It's Joshua seven. 25 and 26, the place where all that happened has been called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble ever since. It represents sin and defeat and judgment. And even though now all Israel together has coveted material possessions and disobeyed God and will be judged by Him, God is going to change the meaning of Achor. Now even that place of trouble will be a door of hope for them. Israel had passed through the Valley of Achor on her way into the Promised Land originally. Now it will once again be the doorway to a new life. How do trouble and defeat and sin and judgment become hope? There's only one way. Relentless, alluring, rescuing, tender love. There are going to be individuals within this nation that is going to be eradicated who will be saved by Hosea's message. There are individuals in the southern kingdom of Judah, even at this time, who will be saved by Hosea's message, who will be saved by this love. There was and is a remnant that will be saved within Israel. God will marry His people again. That's verses 16 to 23. And no longer, he says, will they call Him, My Baal. That's that's a play on words. My Baal literally meant my master or my owner. Baal was sometimes a generic term that could be used of the Lord, but it was used mainly for Canaanite gods. So the verse has a double meaning. It it means Israel will no longer say that Baal is her God. Yes, verse 17. But the word that replaces Baal is not my master. It is my husband. The relationship is going to be intimate. right? Imagine a woman who marries her boss when she's called him sir for years, but on her wedding day he says to her, don't call me sir anymore. Call me your husband. This is God's proclamation to Israel that one day you will think of me differently. I will betroth you, he says three times in verses 19 and 20. In Hebrew, repetition is a sign of intensity. Right? Holy, holy, holy. Whoa, 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 you see in Revelation, which is a terrifying thing. Here, betrothed three times. And betrothed is an engagement word. This is not then, whatever God's talking about here is not simply the reinvigoration of an old marriage. It's the creation of a completely new one. There's no betrothal before you renew vows. There's only a betrothal before a wedding. So God will start all over again. There will be a new covenant, completely unlike the old one, and the old marriage will be forgotten. This marriage will be secured by one side. That's why it will last. And with the repetition, He is telling His people, basically, I am really going to marry you. I am really going to make you my own. I will betroth you to me forever. You you can't get out of that. I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy and in faithfulness. God intends this marriage to last and it will last because He will make it last. Because they will know the Lord. Finally. They'll know Him. No in the Bible is a word for marital intimacy. It starts in 
Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's not just a, a, a like a, a different way to say it. That's how they saw the word know in that context. No, God is not talking about physical intimacy here with his bride. That's not, he's talking about what physical intimacy, though, was meant to point to what it was created for all along. A relationship with God that is so close, we're one flesh with Him. Where we know God and are known by God. In verse 8, remember, Israel didn't know it was Yahweh who had blessed her. In verse 13, she forgot Him. But on this day, she will know Him. And what's one of the most exciting things about getting married? Setting up your new home together. Right? And God will spare no expense. When the first marriage began at Sinai, God gave them the land of Canaan. The new marriage comes with a new home, a permanent one, not just a strip of land in the Middle East. God's language here is looking to something huge and cosmic and global. Notice that switch from verses 16 and 17 to verse 18. The movement is from redemption to new creation, isn't it? A whole new creation. God moves from His particular provision in the saving history of Israel to His provision over all nature, all of history. That day is the final day. That's it. That's the end. The forever day. It's the consummation of all things. Nature is renewed in verse 18. Global peace is brought in verse 18. It's as if Eden is recreated And God will make them lie down in pastures more green than they've ever seen. It's no accident that the Bible begins and ends in a garden. It's like how Noah represented a new beginning after judgment. Israel is being promised a new beginning after judgment. And the answering of the earth that we see here in verses 21 and 22 is that is Him saying everything will be as it should be in that day. There will be wholeness. There will be shalom as they saw it. That was their word for wholeness, completeness of peace. God answers the heavens by sending rain. The heavens answer the earth's need for water. The earth answers the needs of crops by channeling the water into the harvest. This is how the world is supposed to work. And on that day, it will. God will reverse the judgment of verse 9 where He took away the grain and the wine. Now there will be vineyards and vineyards and vineyards of it. Abundance. And in chapter 1, Jezreel was a sign of judgment because as we looked at it, it's association with bloodshed. But again, the word actually means God plants. Judgment will be reversed on that day. And Jezreel will become a sign of God's blessing as God plants, as God sows His people in the land, in this perfect new heavens and new earth where everything is whole, where everything is right, where all His redeemed people dwell safe and secure forever. Three times in this section, Hosea says, in that day, the day when all of this will happen. And he's looking forward to the day when God will accomplish it all through Jesus Christ. The renewal of the earth will take place when Jesus returns one day, brings us to Himself to create this home of righteousness for His people that very interestingly Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3.13. But the new marriage has already begun. As the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.10, remember, sees what is prophesied in Hosea 2.23 
as being fulfilled by the church, in the church, as even Gentiles believe on Jesus Christ and are saved. This will be God's eternal bride. This will be God's eternal people through more reversal as His sheep from every nation once called no mercy will have mercy. As those who were called not my people are called His people. As people who say to Him, You are my God, where once they either said nothing or they only spoke to other lovers. Beloved, please note, all of that takes place not because there was a bride that finally met the conditions, but because the husband declared it would take place and accomplished everything necessary for it to take place. That's why he talks like it will happen, not, I hope this will happen. This is a picture not only of God's gracious determination to have a faithful bride, but His declaration that He will. Because His people will finally know Him. Do you realize when Jesus says in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you? Once Jesus provides the means necessary for a human being to know God, they'll never leave Him. They'll never leave Him. To be known is to be kept Now it's at this point that the action switches back to Hosea and Gomer to the prophet and his literally adulterous wife. Again, why? Here, so that Hosea can enact and illustrate God's gracious one-way love. We, we, we have to talk about as, as you know, throughout the book of Hosea why God went this route. We've talked about it before. When it comes to love, it's demonstrated. It's, it's not enough to just say it. I, I, I think that's my view of what's going on here. Why this technique? To have his prophet marry an adulterous woman? Because the love God means to win back Israel with is demonstrated, not just spoken. Look at verses 1-5 through five of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. <gasps> love, where, what is that? Right? Just, it's, 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 un, it's, it's such a strange sentence, but I think that's the point. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So I bought her. This is Hosea talking about Gomer. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Chapter 3, 1 through 5, or chapter 3, that's all of it, illustrates the message of chapter 2. Hosea's love for Gomer, despite her adultery, is meant to mirror God's love for His people despite their adultery. And chapter 3 assumes chapter 1. This is Gomer. This is the same woman. The marriage this passage promises will be new, but the bride is still 
that sinful and adulterous woman. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 3, Gomer is living with another man. Even if she had only taken part in cultic prostitution, the idea of Hosea and Gomer is so offensive to most commentaries, particularly the older ones, that you, you should read the theories they come up with to get God off the hook for telling his prophet to marry a prostitute. I mean, John Calvin has it as an entire, like, it was just a mirage. It was just a vision. No, Mr. Calvin, it was not just a vision. Like, this happened. God doesn't have to explain himself. Like, where, what's this? This is Gomer. Now she's living with another man. So even if she'd only taken part at one time in cultic prostitution, which somehow would lighten it, at some point she went on to leave Hosea completely for another man, which would be an act way outside the scope of temple prostitution in that culture. So that's who she is. Well, should a prophet of God seek out such a woman? The scandal. Like, does God not know? Yeah, He does. And he does it anyway. And how could his ministry have any integrity? Think about that. Why would anybody have listened to a prophet married to her? I mean, to pursue a wife who had left you because she was a whore was one thing. But to pursue her so far that you would actually buy her back from the ownership of another man, that was simply not done. And that's the point. That's the point. Beloved, I know the language is uncomfortable. All right? It's as weird for you to hear it as, as it is for me to say the word whore. I'm not saying it for shock value. We're, we're, most of us are adults. The point is not to just be shocking. The point is that it's God's word for a bride. He loved so much, He went after her to win her back. That's God's word for her. That's God's word for us outside of His redeeming grace. Why must Hosea do this? Because God doesn't command the simple legal terms of a new marriage to Gomer. He commands love for Gomer. That's what his redemption of her will display because he isn't pursuing Israel to balance the books. He's pursuing Israel because he loves her. Look at the text. Part of the point is that Israel is not worth this. That's what Gomer's embarrassingly pitiful price displays. It's awful. You go and buy your wife back from the house of a lover because you love her and you do it with literal money and it turns out that that is 15 shekels of silver, a homer of barley, and a leafage of barley. Do you know how much Hosea paid to buy back Gomer? 11 grams worth of silver and about 9 bushels of barley. That was how much Gomer was worth on the market at that time. Why does God love His people? I mean, my goodness. What's, what's Israel worth here? What is Israel worth here? Fake gods that don't even exist and raisin cakes. That's the point. God pursues a bride that picked raisins over Him. That's what Hosea is saying. Or God is saying through Hosea, so what makes God's love so amazing is not the worth of the object that He loves, but the fact that He loves that which does not have the worth necessary to merit His love. And that is not meant to crush us tonight. It's not why I say that. 
It's meant to sustain you when the depth of your sin drives you to even the deepest shame. There's no need to try to make yourself worthy for God. There's no need for it. He'll buy you back if you pick raisins over Him. He already loves. He already loves. And beloved, God loves us until He wins us. And He always wins. God made these promises to Israel while she was in prophetic terms in bed with another man. He said this about her while she was still a whore. And the words of divine love and romance that are spoken here are for her. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because it shouldn't be there. This is the message that brought me to life. God loves me. (laughs) Does He know what I'm worth? I couldn't get that price on the market. When, when he does know. Right, the, the, the cross is ultimately about God. The cross is not ultimately about you and me. You, you, you shouldn't look at it and see your own glory. You should look at it and see his. You're loved in that. It's not like you lose love when the cross becomes about Jesus mainly and not us. It's Jesus hanging there. It's the Son of God hanging there. When you look at, I think one of the points here is when you look at Gomer's price and when you look at Israel's corresponding worth spiritually, I think the point is that nobody else would have found Gomer or Israel worth buying. And yet God, the only God, pursues her and redeems her. Look at the text in verses 3 and 4 again. And I said to her, you, this is Hosea speaking to Gomer, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For, or because, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household God. So Hosea, notice that, is unilaterally dictating the terms to Gomer under which their new marriage will exist. He will keep himself from her for a time. That's what he means at the end of verse 3. Gomer will live then like as if she was a widow, without a husband, for a time. Because Israel is to suffer exile for a long time, with all the deprivation and implied by that, or discipline implied by that. But, but, the point here is that all of that will end for his true people within the nation. In that day, when both kingdoms are reunited and God's people are one, 1 Peter 2, 10, and under one king, one banner, the crown of David's line, in verse 5, afterward, after all that, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. In context here, Do we have any time stamps to know what he means in the text when he says afterward, he's referring again to that day. Verse 16, verse 18, verse 21. We very clearly have a time stamp here. The day when the Lord Jesus Christ pays for and accomplishes redemption for all his people at Calvary. 
So a price must be paid to restore Hosea's relationship to Gomer. A price must be paid to restore Israel's relationship to God, just as a price had to be paid to buy back his wandering sheep from every nation, from their hired hands and false lovers that we have given ourselves to. And so the logic of grace says, since there's a price, I will pay it. God pays it. And it's to the unified, the one bride, the one person of Christ that Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. The way of a prostitute. But with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. The precious life and blood of Jesus Christ has the power and worth and value not only to wipe away our debt, but to restore us, adulterers all, to a state of virginity so that we are spiritually pure before Him. That's what the blood of Jesus accomplishes for His people. What a beautiful thing to consider. Hosea 3.5 is, is way bigger than just that physical return from exile because it's a return to God Himself, which was not fully realized when they came back from exile. This is a new and final exodus par excellence, if you will. It's not just a return to a strip of land in Palestine here. It's a return to the city Abraham was looking for that Abraham has found in essence, a city with foundations, the city of the living God. This return is not a return to literal David. David is long dead here. And according to Peter in Acts 2, we're not to place our hope in David's resurrection, although David will be resurrected, no question. But we hope in the true king, the one of whom King David said, the Lord said to my Lord, David had a king that came from his line. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and make the world whole and there's no war because all the enemies are gone. Right? He will reign over all his people just as he promised in God's covenant with David. David saw that as instruction for all mankind, not just Israel. He says that in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus Christ will end all exile. He'll reign over all His people, just as God promised to David. He'll end the worst exile, the exile from God in sin and death. And the New Testament bears witness to this hope when Mark, just one example, opens his gospel in the first three verses by connecting the first arrival of Jesus with two prophecies from the Old Testament predicting the end of exile. Mark saw that in the first coming of Jesus. That, beloved, is where we live now, in the afterward, where God has paid the final price for His bride. And it's all of Him, none from us, relentless, redeeming, one-way, divine, gracious, saving, keeping love, the love of God and Jesus Christ for you and me. Next year, next week, not next year, next week, will be one year since I came by myself and visited Moundsville and the church for the first time. It was one year ago next weekend. I can't believe that. 
One year ago Thursday, I left Brawley alone to come here. And I remember what it was like. I, I remember everything about that. But one thing I remember, and this, this is not a bad thing at all. Or it's, 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 it's just for the sake of the text, I think. I remember what it was like to keep hearing people correct themselves when they said, when you get here, to say, if you get here. That's not a, that's not a critique. Please, do, please don't misunderstand me. My point is this. I remember that. And in my head, you know, my, my wife sent me here by myself with one instruction. And she was dead serious. She said, if you see the hint of a red flag, we're not going. Right? Just please. And so that's how I, so I'm thinking if, right? I'm thinking if, but I'm not saying it because I don't want to blow it. But everybody, you know, people would say, you know, when you, well, you know, if you get it, you know, if it works out, you have to talk that way. You, nobody, right? You have to talk that way during an interview process because there, there's just that little shred of doubt. People have to meet and discuss it. It's not one person's decision. So something that isn't technically finalized or official, you, you can't act like it is. You can't speak like it is. And you can't speak that way because we don't know the future, even when it seems like Something is going to happen. If you don't know, you can't talk like you do know. There's a, my point in sharing that is this. There's a certain way you talk when things still depend on some condition being met. That's all I mean to bring that up. As, as I head into it, I just remember coming and God does not talk that way when he speaks about your future, beloved. you know that? Will you believe that when you hit the pillow tonight? There are no ifs here. There are no ifs associated with this marriage covenant. (laughs) No speculation. No uncertainty in the vows. Here are God's actions toward his adulterous actions toward his adulterous wife in Hosea 2, 14 to 3, 5. Okay, listen to this. I will allure her. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I will remove the names of the Baals. I will make for them a covenant. I will abolish the bow and the sword and war. I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I will answer. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. Thirteen actions to establish a new marriage that cannot ever be undone. And God is the only subject of all the verbs. Only the groom says the vows at this wedding, beloved. So when Romans 8 speaks beautifully of the things that can't separate us from His love, it has a context in the scope of the Bible, doesn't it? The love of which it speaks, the love of God, has been proven from God's side once and for all. And that's enough to make it win and not if. Such is the power and sufficiency of the risen and reigning Lord, Jesus Christ. Not even our adultery will separate us from His love. 
God secures and accomplishes eternal and irrevocable salvation through his unilateral, gracious, redeeming love. I don't know how you see yourself tonight as we close. But for the believer, and for you who may be wondering right now if you might come and partake of this love, while the accuser will roar, and the evidence will show that we're guilty, and the world and the flesh and the devil will most certainly conspire to shake us loose. Jesus Christ died. If you want to get specific, according to Ephesians 2 and 3, that God might wrap His arms around you and say to the cosmos, say to your accuser, say to every fallen angel and every doubter about you, she is mine forever, and you can't have her. This is what Jesus has accomplished. The promise of God, of one-way love. It's all we have. It's all we need. It's sufficient. And it's amazing. So, as we close, as Bob comes to lead us and Linda to play, I'm going to pray. I'll be down front. Jesus Christ will receive you if you come to Him. Period. Period. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the precious promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you for this covenant love. I praise you that it's all on you. I praise you that none of it is on us. To believe is not to contribute. To believe is to accept. And so, Father, I pray that we would believe tonight we believe in a couple hours we believe the next time our flesh or the enemy or the world make us think the grass is greener on the other side Lord please help me to remember this sermon please please help your people to remember please help our church to remember please shine through us that Moundsville might hear about it Father And I ask and pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.